you own and you gave the very breath in our lungs. Throughout scripture, you tell us how we're to speak, not just because you're, you're just commanding us, but because the very breath in us is, is given to us from you. You own us, Lord. So may this morning, the very breath that comes out of our mouth be used to praise the name of Christ Jesus. Help us, O oh Lord, to do so by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Trust that you had a good Resurrection Sunday last week and the amazing reality, and maybe we forget this sometimes, is that we get to celebrate the resurrection of Christ every, every Lord's Day. And that's why we gather on the first day of each week following the tradition of the apostles to proclaim a resurrected Savior to all men everywhere. That's why we gather as a body, amen? That's why we're here. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Romans chapter 5. We will be picking up at verse 18 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the inspired word of God through the lips of the Apostle Paul, which bears the weight and authority of Christ himself. Please receive it as such this morning. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, we need your help to worship you this morning. Even though the singing is done, we can still worship you, and we must worship you through your inspired perfect word. Help me, O oh Lord, to preach clearly and faithfully to your text, and may ears and hearts this morning receive it. Father, unstop our ears. We love you, Lord, for your grace abounds to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, this morning, I really only have two things to talk about. Two things, two people. And I'm sure you've already guessed it. Adam and Christ. Adam and Christ. And for those of you who are concerned that a two-point sermon may lend itself to a short sermon, rest assured you'll be amazed how long I can talk about two things. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll get you home by at least two o'clock. <laughs> now, in, in all reality, what I have to say this morning, what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, it's really quite simple. It's quite simple. And it's not hard to understand. What will be hard is to get this truth in our bloodstream. This is what will be hard, at least for many of us. So often it can be the most basic and fundamental truths in Scripture that we want to resist, that we're offended by, that we want to argue with. Take the message of the cross, for example. Paul himself said that the word of the cross is folly or foolishness. 
to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. He didn't say that it would be hard or difficult to understand the gospel. He said that it would be foolishness. And the hard-hearted Greek would say, why would a, a God come and die? That doesn't demonstrate power. That demonstrates weakness and failure. The hard-hearted Jew would say, Yahweh coming in the flesh and yet further dying on the cursed tree that our scriptures say is cursed? That's blasphemy. And today, the hard-hearted man may say that Jesus dying on the cross, taking the wrath of the Father, is cosmic child abuse and points to a cruel God. Or they may say, Jesus, who you claim to be God, who who died on this cross, there is no God. You see, so many reject the word of the cross not because it is so hard to understand, but because it is so easily understood. So easily understood that they take offense at what it means. They are offended by the message. So they outright deny it or say scripture isn't saying what it is clearly saying. And if we're honest, wrestling with simple truths doesn't simply go away when we become Christians, when we become believers. One can say that's actually when the real wrestling begins. I don't think I have to convince you of that this morning. I think each one of you this morning has been wrestling with some part of Scripture, whether now or in the past or or something. You have been wrestling with, with truths, as we should. And oftentimes there are passages that we come across that make us a little nervous when we read, isn't there? Is this really saying what it appears to be saying? And this morning I believe we are at one of these passages, not hard to grasp, but offensive to the independent Western mindset. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me again. I'll read them both. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So the first thing I would like to focus on this morning is the first man mentioned by Paul, Adam. Our representative, Adam. Now Paul says that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. How does this work? How could the trespass of one man lead to the condemnation of others, namely the whole of the human race? Here's how. When we think of salvation, we must stop thinking of it so individualistically and start thinking of it covenantally covenantally. God deals with his people in covenants. Let me say that again. God deals with his people in covenants. When God had created man in Genesis 2, he entered into a covenant with him. This was a covenant of life based upon perfect obedience to his command. And what was that command? You may eat of any tree of the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obedience leads to life. Disobedience leads to death. 
So I want to pause here just briefly and not assume that everyone knows what a covenant is. I'm sure you've heard the word before, but maybe you're just not quite sure what the definition is. But as Christians, it is really vitally important that we understand what a covenant is because this is how God relates to his people. If we do not understand covenants, sadly, we won't understand all of Scripture or at least what it's teaching in its fullest extent. So as Mark Jones says, here's, here's a basic definition. I'm using someone else's words um, because they can put it more clearly than I could. At its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. At its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. An example that I'm sure everyone is familiar with that would fall under this general definition is marriage. It's marriage. If you've ever been to a wedding that uh, Pastor Eric officiates, you'll hear him talk about how a marriage is not a contract but a covenant. A contract is generally an agreement between two parties to do or not to do something in a certain time frame. Now, if the contract is broken, there are often penalties that are outlined in the contract, and once the fines are paid, both parties can just walk away. It's a legal agreement that can function without relationship. Without relationship. Now, a covenant is lifelong. Lifelong and relational by nature. When you get married, what do you say? Until death do us part. As someone said, when you get married, you get measured for your tux and your coffin at the same time. (laughs) You're not just committing your time, your money, your resources, fill the blank in. You're committing your whole being, your whole self. You become one flesh. And to breach a covenant, or I'm sorry, to breach a contract is not by nature immoral necessarily. But it is always immoral to break covenant. When you get married, you give your whole self to your husband or wife. When you turn around and give yourself to another person in an adulterous act, you have broken the covenant even before divorce takes place. Thankfully, there can be reconciliation and forgiveness. But the breaking of a covenant is no small thing. Oh, we might think so as sinful man, but in God's eyes, he says, this is a grievous offense against me. So why am I laboring on about this? Because we need to understand, as I already mentioned, that God entered into a covenant with Adam when he created him. He essentially said to him in the garden, look around, all this is yours. You can eat of any tree. Take dominion of this world. But because I am your creator and God, I would like you to do this one thing to show your love for me. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To do so will lead to your death. Eat of any tree but this one. And we know what happens in Genesis 3. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobey God and eat of the tree. Adam broke the conditions of the covenant and the consequences followed. And as a side, we don't find the actual word covenant in Genesis 2 and 3, 
but many scholars agree that the language used in this section is covenantal language, covenantal language. It's structured covenantally like we find the other covenants in Scripture, like the covenant God made with, with Noah, Abraham, Israel, David. And that's not by mistake. When Moses penned this account, this wasn't by accident. He penned it this way on purpose for us to see this is a covenant taking place. So Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3. So what? So what? They sinned way back then. What does that sin way back then have to do with us right now? Us sitting in this room right now? So this is what Paul is laboring to tell us. Adam was our covenant head. Covenant head. God appointed him to represent all of humanity. His obedience or disobedience would impact the rest of mankind. And the theological term for this is called federalism. Adam was our divinely appointed head, our representative. Now in America, we can somewhat be familiar with this idea. I say somewhat because it's becoming increasingly clear that so many of us don't even know how America functions. Um, so if this is your first time hearing about this, I'm glad you're learning now. But America, the United States of America, is a constitutional republic. A constitutional republic. You know, you always hear the word democracy. We're a democracy. In a sense, that could be correct, but it's not a direct democracy. We all don't go down to Washington, D.C. or to the Ohio State House, and we don't all go vote as far as all the bills that are being passed. We have a representative, right? So... This, represent, this representative is for you and me and the government. And when they do vote on something, they're essentially saying, I am voting for this because this is what my people say. You're essentially casting your vote with them is what is happening. Even if you disagree, that's how a representative works. So if they continue to vote for things you don't agree with, and that makes them bad representative, right? Then you go vote them out, right? When we go vote, we're voting for our representatives. So God appointed Adam to be the covenant head of humanity. In a republic, we get a say in who we want to represent us. But God does not function as a republic. And by the way, um, Jonas is going up, I think in a couple weeks, to officially be sworn in as a citizen. So I'm sure he could probably tell you more about how this country functions than, than we all could because he had to study way more and pay attention than we all did in school. So he could probably correct me with all the, thing, all the things I said that are wrong. Um, but in a republic, we get a say in who we want to re represent us, whether on the state level or federal level, but God doesn't function as a republic. He functions according to his mere good pleasure. And what he says is righteous, just, and good. God has determined to work through covenants and had appointed Adam to be your covenant head. That's just how it works. That is how God said it works. So look again at verse 18, at the beginning. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. 
Because of Adam's sin, all men are condemned. Every single human being born since the time of Adam. And newsflash, that's everybody. Are corrupt. We're counted guilty by Adam's transgression. Apart from all that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ accepted. Everyone else counted guilty. That means everyone sitting in this room counted guilty. Look at the beginning of verse 19 again. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. As Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his commentary on Romans, it doesn't say man was made or counted to be sinful, but sinners. And the Greek word for made there in the text is kathistemi. Kathistemi. Uh, And that's made in our English text, which is an accurate translation. But another way it could be said is appointed or caused to be. Appointed or caused to be. By Adam's sin, we were appointed or caused to be sinners. An important doctrine we get from this text is called original sin. In other words, man is born a sinner. It's no secret that my wife is pregnant. And we are less than five weeks out from the due date of our little guy being born, uh, which is really exciting. And when he, he's born, I'll get a hold in my arms. Of course, after Lindsay gets to hold him, but I'll, I'll get to hold him and I'll get to say he's just an innocent little newborn, right? I get to, get to hold him, this little guy. At least Lindsay hopes he's little at first. Um, and he has committed no real or actual transgression or sin. He's just a little baby. He won't even be aware of obedience or disobedience. He can't actively disobey us because he doesn't even comprehend what that is. And at first, he'll just be a little bump on the log that poops. <laughs> so in that sense, he'll be innocent. In that sense, he'll be innocent. But back up with me and read verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressor, the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So you see that sin is properly defined here as the lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And we know that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. How is it that death reigned from Adam to Moses if there is no law given? If there's no law given yet? And by the law, Paul is speaking about the Mosaic law, which most famously contains the introduction of the Ten Commandments. So death reigned because man didn't need to transgress the law of God to become sinners. They were already born in that condition. As R.C. Sproul put it so well, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin was in the world before the law was given because of original sin. 
If that isn't true, then no one would die before at least they commit their first sin, right? So another important doctrine that this text is teaching us is imputation. Imputation. And for many of you, this is not a new word. In fact, you've probably heard this word many times if you grew up in church, and that's a really good thing because there's hardly a more important doctrine that we could discuss, that we could talk about. Imputation. So what does imputation mean? It means that something is reckoned or transferred to our account. There's been many sermons before this sermon that have addressed imputation. So I won't labor on about all the fine little details of it. But in verse 19, when Paul says that the many were made sinners, this is exactly what imputation means. You and me, all mankind, were reckoned to be sinners. The first transgression of Adam was transferred to our account because he was our representative. He represented you and me. We are born sinners because of Adam's disobedience. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 16 states, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? And the answer, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity or descendants, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And as question 19 in the Shorter Catechism states, well, what is the misery of that estate wherein to man fell? What is the misery of it? Answer, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. When people hear this, you know what phrase so often comes next. <laughs> Whether from our lips or from our heart, that's not fair. That's not fair. How and why am I to blame for someone else's sin thousands of years ago? And on one level, we want to agree don't we? We want to agree. That's offensive, isn't it? You see, this is what I meant when I said that there are some things that are easy to understand but hard to accept because they can come across as offensive. But this is how God has decided to work. Who are we to argue with it? We know that every decision and way in which God works is perfect and good. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were left to the freedom of their own will and sinned against a perfect and holy God. And we're not just born with the potential to sin. We are born in an estate where God has already declared us guilty before we're even born. And it sure doesn't take us long to manifest our corrupt nature, does it? We're quickly bearing not only original sin, but the weight of our actual transgressions we commit very quickly. And we want to 
get upset at Adam's sin. We want to get upset at the imputation of Adam's guilt. But which one of you in this room has kept the law perfectly yourself? Which one of you can say you have not sinned against God? Who in this congregation can declare their innocence? Which brings us to the second person that Paul mentions, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, our representative. So what does the second part of verse 18 and 19 say? So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And by that one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see what Paul is doing here. He is comparing two people and their actions. He is comparing the consequences of Adam's work and the consequences of Christ's work. And it's critical we understand how imputation functions here. I said this is one of the most important doctrines we could talk about, and here's why. There is another covenant, and Christ is the head and represents all those who are in this covenant, a covenant of grace. In the same way that those who are in Adam have his sins imputed to their account, all those who are in Christ have his righteousness imputed to their account. And we're so quick to cry that it's not fair that Adam's guilt is transferred to my account. But it seems like we never say that when Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. We never say, well, that's not fair. We're pretty quick to accept that one, aren't we? We reject Adam's imputation that God has said. But Christ, of course, because I think some of, most of us function this way. We think in some little way that we earn that deserve that in some little way but in reality our response should be that's not fair either as R.C. Sproul said the very essence of the gospel is that someone else's righteousness counts for us and he said further if you do not have justification by faith alone you do not have the gospel And if you do not have imputation, you do not have justification by faith alone. You see why imputation is so important to understand. Man is born in Adam and receives all of Adam's benefits, which is condemnation, death. But all those who are born again in Christ receive all his benefits. And you notice a theme here. This is all apart from any work that we do all apart from any work that we do look at verse 17 briefly much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ so those who have been made alive as Ephesians 2 5 says or those who have been delivered and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, as Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, those are the ones who are in the covenant of grace with Christ as their head. 
And some people get all worked up in this passage of Romans because it might appear, and maybe you've noticed this, and maybe you're having some questions yourself as I did, which is good, that, uh, that this passage is teaching some sort of universalism. Universalism, meaning all people everywhere will be eventually saved somehow. Right? Paul says all. There is condemnation for all men, so why isn't there justification in life for all men? Just like it says in verse 18. An early church commentator, Ambrosiaster, said, some people think that because the condemnation was universal, the acquittal will also be universal. But that is not so, because not everyone believes. So a, a popular phrase you may hear, especially, unfortunately, uh, in Anabaptist circles, is that all means all always. Maybe you've heard that. And even a basic reading of Scripture would, would show that to be uh, utterly false. Rather, we could say all means all always when Paul is using it all in an all-encompassing way. But for some reason, that's not as catchy. I don't know why. Verse 18, Paul says, all... And in verse 19, Paul says, many. The fact that all and many are interchangeable shows he isn't primarily telling us the total number, the total number of all the people who will, who will be saved. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, what he is saying is all in Adam, condemnation. All in Christ, eternal life. And we know that universalism isn't true because Paul elsewhere teaches uh, for instance, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I would commend you this Lord's Day to go home and read that chapter. If, if you ever think this chapter is somehow teaching universalism, go, re- go ahead and read uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We know that Paul isn't teaching that. So not everyone will be saved because as all are in, born in Adam, many will also remain in Adam. But all those who believe in Christ and all he has done Those who receive God's grace are now in Christ. When you are transferred from Adam into Christ, there is no going back. There's no going back. There isn't this back and forth business in Adam and Christ, in Adam and Christ. That's not how it functions. There's no category in Scripture for such a thing. All those who are in Christ stay in Christ In Scripture, how many times does it talk about God not losing one of His own? Not one sheep will perish. Those in Christ stay in Christ. But praise be to God, not all those in Adam stay in Adam. Those in Christ never will be moved. Not one. And as I said, the reason for that is because all this is apart from our works. It's all apart from anything that we do. It's all based upon Christ's finished and perfect work. And this should cause us to have great assurance because since I contributed not one thing to my salvation, I cannot contribute one thing to the loss of it. This isn't a category in Scripture, like I said. All the blessings of Christ, namely eternal life, in communion with God, come to all those who have Christ as their head. 
since Christ has earned and gifted that for them. Not one thing did we do to earn a position in Christ and to be delivered from Adam. So why do we think, friends, brothers and sisters this morning, that we can somehow then lose that blessed position by something that we do? Verse 20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In the same way we were declared sinners apart from our actions, we are declared righteous apart from our actions. And the law, as it says, came to increase our sins, to expose our miserable estate, to show us how totally depraved we actually are. But for those who are in Christ, were sin increased or abounded, as some translations say, which I like, grace abounded all the more. Or I think in the King James it says superabounded. I like that word. Where, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. I like that. And those of us who are under grace, which means that we have Christ as our head, have their sins completely covered. When we sin, there is more grace which covers that sin. And there is no amount of sin which can exceed the stores of grace found in Christ alone. Grace always abounds past the Christian sin without exception. You cannot outsin God's grace. And it's not like you sin and then grace comes in really quick, tries to cover it and rush in and, and cover it all up. That, that, that's not what, what Paul is teaching here. It functions like this. That God's grace so freely flows in such abundance to you that your cup overflows with it. And that single drop of sin that falls into the cup is already overflowing with grace so it cannot remain and it is washed away. And it is so removed that God says, I won't even remember it. Why? Because he looks at you as if you had the perfect righteousness and complete works of Christ. In other words, he looks at you as if you did everything Christ did to obey the law perfectly. He looks at you and says, my son, my daughter, you have fulfilled the law perfectly. Why? Because Christ is your representative. What Christ has done, you reap the benefits apart from what you've done. You... <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you wear his righteous robes. No longer your sin-stained rags. Nate, you can come up. And the reality is, some of you in this room may still have your sin-stained rags on this morning. You still have Adam as your representative. 
you still have Adam as your head and remain under the curse and wrath of God. And you have no grace abounding to you. Rather, what is abounding to you is you're storing up the wrath of God on that day of judgment. That's your condition this morning, possibly. And what more could I say to you than to flee to Christ? Flee to Christ this morning. As I heard a sermon recently where someone was preaching and and he said, there may be some of you in this room who are not justified before God. And he pleaded with them and said, do not leave this room until you are justified. And that isn't something that we do. That is something we cry out to God for mercy and grace. So those of you in this room who are still in Adam, do not leave this room until you know you are justified. Pray to God that he would give you the right eyes to see your own heart condition, to see if you belong to Adam or to Christ. But some of you in this room do wear the righteous robes of Christ, but you still think you have the sin rags on. You live your life feeling dejection and such lack of assurance because how could God accept me I know what I've done. I know that God knows even more so. But the good news is that God does not accept you because of you, friend. He accepts you because you are in Christ. He says, child, you are mine. I remember your sins no more. You are my beloved possession. What more could you do than what my son, Christ Jesus, has already done? See that I smile upon you because I love you. And my love is not earned, but has freely flowed to you in Christ. That is what he says to those who are his. And we function as Christians so often as if that is not true, that we're still wearing our own robes that are filthy. But this text teaches us, once again, apart from anything that we do, in what great assurance this is, apart from our works. We have God's grace. So we cannot lose it. So we live by faith and not feelings because the accuser comes and says, you are a filthy sinner. But like Martin Luther said, and this is not verbatim, but essentially, I know you're right, Satan, but I know who paid that debt. Don't take it to me, take it to him. We feel dejected so often as believers. But we, if we're in Christ, wear his righteous robes. 
And Martin Lowe-Jones in his commentary even goes so far and says that we cannot even call ourselves sinners. No, we still sin, but we are so removed from our sins that God does not see them as if that is blocking us from coming to him. It's washed, past, present, and future. And those in Adam, that is the hope that we have in Christ. i leave you with verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, which is the reality for everyone in Adam, death, sin, hopelessness. Grace also might reign through righteousness, not righteousness of our own, but leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's righteousness, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, our justification in Christ is as sure as our condemnation in Adam. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we do confess our sins before you that we not only have actual transgressions, but we were born in Adam. We were born with guilt. And that is hard to accept to our natural minds. But that is what your word so clearly teaches. But praise be to you, O Father, that you sent Christ Jesus to be our representative. That all those who believe, all those who come to you, all who are weary and heavy laden, as Matt read this morning, that you promised them rest. That is apart from all that we do. That is apart from even how we feel. That is a promise. And as we sang that Nate led us, remember your promise, O God. That is your promise in Christ. Clean, eternal life, washed, sanctified, glorified. We praise you this morning for this reality. Christ Jesus, our Lord, our representative. And even though the sermon is done, would you continue to do a work on our hearts with this truth? Praise you from the reality which we came from and now in the reality in which we live. And we pray all this in Christ's wonderful, wonderful name. Amen. Please stand as we conclude with one more song together.